From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Well, in today's installment of Where We Live, we are taking a look at a very fun event and it is time sensitive as well. We are almost into October and this is something called Pumpkins After Dark. And joining me to talk more about this is Kevin Blackburn, the CEO and partner with Pumpkins After Dark. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. What exactly is this event? Well, it's our second year here in Burnaby, um, and this is a Halloween festival of kind of all things Halloween. Um, The large part of the event is actually um, our art installments that we have um, located all around Central Park here, which are anywhere from four feet to 16 foot high pumpkin carvings. But we have all kinds of cool things down here, like live pumpkin carving. We have food trucks. We have photo ops, fun things for the kids to do. Um, Nestle's on site with a trick-or-treat station. So kind of all things Halloween, but the main ticket is the pumpkin pathway where you get to see the fantastic art. And I understand too, uh, you you might think of a a jack-o'-lantern or a pumpkin carving as the the triangle eyes and the kind of toothy grin, but uh, these go far beyond that when it comes to the intricate designs and what these pumpkins look like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's all different styles of carvings down here. We have that classic jack-o'-lantern style of carving that you just mentioned. We also have shaded carvings where artists are actually not um, piercing through the pumpkin, but they're shading for different depths of light to see through to create a face or an object. Um, We have everything from classic horror monsters to gremlins to um, we have an Egypt scene this year with with the King Tut. Um, all kinds of cool things like that, kind of something for everyone. I I was going to ask kind of the age group that it's uh, targeted at, but it sounds like all ages. Yeah, really wide uh, ranging demographic for us because we get everything from families to date night and everything in between. Uh, It's bring, it's like I said, it's bring your family down. It's bring your friends down, grandma, grandpa. Um, Everyone kind of enjoys the event and it's, it's designed so that anybody can enjoy it of all ages. You mentioned that this is the second year that this has been happening. How did it all come about? Yeah, so actually, um, my business partner uh, is an entrepreneur who lives just outside of Toronto in Milton, Ontario, which is where the first event actually took place. And he's a Halloween enthusiast. And when he was living in New York, he saw a similar event happening. And he thought to himself, man, Canadians would love this. So he launched an event just outside of Toronto. And ever since then, it's taken off. Um, We're going into our sixth year in Milton, Ontario. Calgary is going into its third year. Edmonton and Burnaby are going into their second years. And we just launched an event out in Ottawa as well. So um, we've kind of started small. And every year, we add new things to the event. Not to mention something that's really important for all the people listening that have been to the event before is we actually bring a brand new show to the city each year. So if you came through Pumpkins After Dark and you saw all the different artwork, you can expect to see a brand new show this year, all new artwork, all new characters, all new designs. What's uh, amazing. I understand, too, that uh, people might uh, or will get an opportunity to see demonstrations. So if you see some of those pumpkins and wonder, well, how did that come about? How do they do that? There will actually be demonstrations there as well showing people. Yeah, actually, I'm really excited this year. I will say um, 
that I think of all the incredible carvers we have around the country, one of the most talented carver, his name is Michael here in the Vancouver area. He does our event every year and he's incredible. So he'll be on site doing his regular work. But for the last few months, he's been designing this uh, creepy pumpkin tree that's going to hold all of his artwork that he does throughout the event. Um, on different branches and hands. So I haven't even seen it yet. I'm really excited. Um, there will be at least one or two pumpkin carvers on site doing live demonstrations, showing people, you know, what they do and the different styles of carvings that you can learn about. Um, so that's obviously a big part of the show because it takes our artists and our carving teams an entire year to carve a lot of the synthetic pumpkins you see on site here um, into masterpieces that we can then put together and put on display at the event. And you mentioned food as well, in that this is more than than pumpkins on display, uh, food trucks uh, and that kind of thing. What what else can people be uh, kind of look forward to? Yeah, that's right. We're going to have all kinds of cool Halloween treats and sweets down here. I think we have a minimum of four trucks um, on site every night. I know that one of them is a giant mini donut truck, which is a crowd pleaser. Um, but no, we also have, uh, like I mentioned, one of our sponsors is Nestle. They have a trick-or-treat station along the pathway. So everybody, um, whether you're going to purchase some food on site or if you're just taking in the artwork along the pathway, you're going to leave with a treat no matter what. All right. So that's, uh, that's something that people love doing as well. Uh, when is this going to be happening? When can people come and start checking it out? So tickets are on sale right now at pumpkinsafterdark.com. We open on October 6th, which is next Friday, and we run every Thursday to Sunday up until October 31st, with October 31st being that one-off or day because it lands on a Tuesday this year. Right. So um, we do add extra days um, if ticket uh, demand is high enough. So we, we make sure that when we're in a city that we do our absolute best to have anybody who wants to come see us be able to attend. And you mentioned as well, so this is all happening in Central Park in Burnaby? It's actually two-part location. So if you're familiar with where Swangard Stadium is, which is basically at the uh, corner of Boundary and Kingsway, um, you actually enter in the stadium. That's where all the food trucks are and the pumpkin carving and merchandise and cool photo ops. You leave the stadium and you do a loop around Central Park, which is absolutely gorgeous. If you've ever been to Central Park, this is a great way to experience it. You loop back into Swangard Stadium where you can then take a few more photos or grab some food for the road and then uh, and then that's kind of how the event works. Typically most people spend about an hour and a half to two and a half hours here uh, but there is no time limit. You know some people spend two hours on the pathway because they're 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 loving the artwork. Well that sounds like it is going to be a great event. I understand then is it pumpkinsafterdark.com if people want to check out the website or, or find out more about it? Yeah, pumpkinsafterdark.com. I mean, even a quick Google search will bring us up as well. Uh, we have all our frequently asked questions on the website. We have the locations, all the different styles of tickets. We do offer a flex pass. If you're not sure what date you want to go, you can purchase that ticket and show up any time. That, uh, that is a popular ticket and doesn't stay around too long. Um, but all the information you may need will be on that website. All right. Sounds good. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you filling us in and letting everybody know what they can expect at this event this year. Thank you very much. We appreciate it as well. You have a great day.
Well, Vancouver appears to be looking at a policy, and this is a policy that deals with view cones, something that has been part of the development policy in the city of Vancouver since the late 80s, designed to preserve those views of mountains and the ocean from specific locations in the city. Is it time, though, to review them and see if maybe they're all needed or if they are still serving the purpose they are intended to? Well, Peter Meisner is a Vancouver City Councillor, and he joins me now to talk a little bit more about this. Peter, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on, Jill. Um, I know whenever you talk about this, you get some pushback with people saying, don't mess with these views. These are very important, an important part of the city. So what are you suggesting the city do? Yeah, so we certainly recognize that uh, views are part of what makes Vancouver great and what makes living in an urban environment great, especially in a dense city like Vancouver. We need to maintain those beautiful uh, vistas of the mountains of the ocean. But this is really about reviewing some of these lower priority view cones. So there's 26 view cones in total. Uh, The probably best known one is the one from Queen Elizabeth Park. That's a big panoramic view of the downtown skyline. This is really not anticipating making any changes to those big panoramic view cones. This is about some of these uh, smaller, lower priority view cones that are blocked by trees, they're blocked by sail masts in the marina, for example, or they're only visible from a moving vehicle. So we're asking staff to come back with information on those view cones and how much housing, uh, if we were to eliminate some of those lower priority view cones, uh, could be unlocked. And the way it is now, how, how much of an obstacle is it as far as, like you said, there, there are 26 specific locations in the city. How often does it come up or, or does it that something will come forward or maybe there'll be, be an idea for a development of some kind, but it doesn't even really get off the ground because of these view cones? Yeah, I've been on council for just uh, almost a year now and uh, have already encountered several uh, situations, uh, everything from rental to strata to even social housing, where there's towers uh, predominantly downtown uh, that are are looking to be built uh, by developers, but they're getting sliced by one third uh, because of a view cone, say, from the middle of the Granville Street Bridge that's only visible when you're uh, in a moving vehicle. So there's a social housing uh, tower at Richards and Drake that uh, is in the situation. Instead of having a, a square floor plate, it has to be uh, more of a triangular floor plate because there's a view cone that cuts across the site. Uh, in that case, that's a social housing tower, and uh, that is a loss of uh, a lot of social housing units because of that view cone. Also hearing of cases of uh, towers downtown that uh, were uh, meant to be rental and have flipped to strata because they can't make the numbers work due to these view cones. So it is a, it is a serious issue, and uh, what we want to do is balance the need for uh, views and, and the natural beauty of Vancouver, but also addressing the serious housing crisis uh, that we're in and maximizing those, uh, those pieces of land. Uh, just going back to the one you mentioned, so on the Granville Bridge, sorry, can, can you explain that a little more? Because it, it's, I think anybody hearing that will think, well, when you're driving over the Granville Bridge or cycling or walking over that bridge, there are vistas. I mean, there are views of the ocean, of the cities. What is the specific view cone that's protected? Yeah, so it's a moving view cone. So there's actually three view cones on the bridge when that are only visible when you're in a moving vehicle. So they're actually of the North Shore Mountains. They're not of the ocean. So there would be no change to the, the ocean view uh, from any of the bridges. But this is really when you're moving in a vehicle heading north into downtown, you can see the lions uh, you know, at, at certain points. But they're only really visible for a few seconds. And as you may know, we are making changes to the Granville Street Bridge to add more active transportation. There's going to be a new bike lane. Uh, so there's already realignment of, of the lanes on that bridge. So it's actually going to change uh, even that moving view cone. 
But I think, you know, the fact that we're trying to preserve what well, we're not trying to preserve, but that there, that there are view cones for moving vehicles in a housing crisis, it just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, no, and I would think that that would be the one maybe you would get the least amount of pushback. Like you said, the Queen Elizabeth Park one is this iconic view uh, of the city, and it is a beautiful view from that that park. But again, that would be something that's that's enjoyed uh, by people that are at the park and uh, that are, are, are um that are in that area, whereas a moving view cone for drivers or for, for if you're on a bridge does seem a bit odd. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that's the intention of the motion is to have report our staff come back with a report on all the view cones. But I really, um, you know, we're really laser focused on those lower priority ones, not the panoramic views. You know, we recognize the value of those. It's a tourist attraction. And it also is, you know, we need those vistas in the city and living in such a busy, dense city. We have to have beautiful views and tower separation, all those things. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, we're in a housing crisis. People can't live in a view. So we shouldn't be in, enforcing these some of these uh, lower priority arbitrary view cones that are actually like shaving hundreds of housing units off projects when we desperately need them. Uh, are there any concerns when you look at areas like Fairview slopes and areas where there are height restrictions because of the, the slope itself and that if you were starting to build, say, higher buildings, you would be cutting off not just the view cones, but you'd be cutting off the views of a lot of residents. Are there any concerns that this could open that up, that, that it would go beyond view cones and views as well? Uh, right now, it's just really about view cones and view corridors, and there's no uh, changes anticipated to, say, tower separation, for example, and Vancouver is really a leader in that. That's the distance between buildings, so that really helps with liv- livability. I live in a tower myself, but I'm surrounded by other towers. But the fact that, you know, there's a certain amount of uh, distance away, you know, really helps with the livability. But you mentioned Fairview Slopes, and I think what's interesting is when you think about Cambian Broadway, there was actually view cones up until this spring that protected the view of City Hall from down town. So we were limiting the height of buildings around Cambian Broadway just so people could see City Hall from the seawall. And they were and it, the reasoning around that was that it was a wayfinding uh, thing. But, you know, I think if you talk to people, no one's going to tell you that uh, they're using City Hall for wayfinding, especially when we all have a, a phone in our pocket. So, you know, we've already relaxed some of those view cones. And I think that's really important in that uh, location because two rapid transit lines intersecting, multi-billion dollar investment from Broadway Subway. We need to do what we can to maximize those areas for job space and new housing. Right. And, and no, and I, and I think you would agree. And there still are. I think if you're if you're walking over the Canby Bridge or you're heading that you can still see City Hall from from many parts of, of False Creek and, and from that, maybe just not from where that specific uh, view cone was. Uh, what What's going to happen with this? I know you're bringing this motion to council. What do you see kind of as a timeline for looking at this? Yeah, so the motion comes to council on Wednesday. We have some speakers already interested in speaking uh, to the motion. Uh, We are asking for a report back by the end of the year on some of those lower priority view cones that could potentially be eliminated on an expedited basis. And a survey back in 2010, uh, the public was surveyed multiple times, and they actually identified which ones were lower priority to them. So there's already some uh, information gathering that's been done. But the bigger piece is mid-next year. We'll get a a package from uh, the City Hall uh, with a review of all the view cones, and that's going to tell us how much additional housing, job space, and public amenities that we're missing out on by restricting development on some of these key sites downtown. So I'm expecting uh, this to pass. You know, we do have a really pro-housing uh, council uh, here. We all get the, the situation that we're in and these, these little kind of tweaks that we need to make along the way in order to really unlock uh, housing across Vancouver. 
Well, we will wait and see what comes back in this report. Peter Meisner, thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. I think a lot of people became aware of the Pacific Crest Trail when Cheryl Strayed wrote about it in her book, Wild. She actually was on CKNW when that book came out, talking about how she hiked the trail, what prompted her to do it, what she encountered, the obstacles along the way, and uh, then put that book together. Well, there is a new book out that takes a look at the Pacific Crest Trail, but it is very, very different. It is called Trail of the Lost, and it is written by Andrea Lankford, who who also wrote Ranger Confidential. Andrea is was a ranger, a law enforcement ranger with the National Park Service in the United States for 12 years. She won several awards for her criminal investigations and since leaving her role as a ranger, she has hiked many other trails and, as mentioned, she has written this book that has just come out called Trail of the Lost. And Andrea joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, thanks for having me, Jill. Well, I'm uh, I'm so intrigued, and I'm going to fully admit right now I have not finished reading the book, and we won't give away the end because I'm just can't wait to get to the end of the book. But we won't we won't spoil it for people. But tell us a little bit about this particular story and the fact that you are focusing on three disappearances. How did you uh, become aware of this and get involved with this? Well, what happened is I heard about an odd case of a missing PCT hiker, Pacific Crest Trail in Southern California, Chris Sylvia. He's 28 years old, and he disappeared while hiking the trail in Southern California in 2015. His circumstances around his case reminded me of a case that I had worked in 1995 at the Grand Canyon, and I had failed to find that missing hiker. And The authorities appeared to have given up, and I felt bad for Chris Sylvia's family, so I called and asked for their blessing to open my own investigation into his disappearance. Pretty soon, right off the bat, I learned something disturbing. There were a total of three missing young men who were trying to hike the Pacific Crest Trail when they disappeared. The second was Chris Sherpa Fowler, who disappeared from Washington State in 2016, and then in 2017, David O'Sullivan from Ireland, who was 25, he also vanished while hiking the trail in Southern California. And were there other similarities as far as the area or the the type of terrain where these men disappeared? Or was it uh, not just, was it that there were these three cases that that were not, uh, there there was nobody or there there was no real explanation? Yeah, yeah, they were all three young men. They were all unmarried. They were all healthy and fit, uh, two in Southern California and one in Washington, as I said. Uh, one thing that was common among the three of them is they were all three carrying a book, reading a book about someone who had disappeared in some form of fashion uh, before they themselves disappeared. But other than that, I did not find any connections uh, directly between the three. Did that seem strange to you, that they were all reading kind of similar material? It's an odd coincidence, for sure. That That's the kind of thing that makes you go, hmm. Uh, you know, two of them, there were weather conditions or environmental conditions that were one of the suspects. You know, when a ranger gets an overdue hiker case, 
and they're missing, right away you have a lot of suspects and not all of them are human. Some of them are animals, some of them are weather. And so in the book, Trail the Lost, I go through all the suspects who might be uh, culpable in the disappearance of these three young men. Right. And and like you say, there are so many possibilities. And your book goes into uh, kind of how the family members gathered. And like you said, the, the Facebook groups and the groups. Was that because of, of frustration with investigators or frustration with law enforcement that family members felt they weren't doing enough? Yes, that is often the case. Uh, you know, I've I've worked missing hiker cases and an agency, sometimes their response isn't as good as you'd like. But even in when you do attack it, after about five, seven or 10 days, it's, it's time to move on because you have other people that need help and these searches are expensive. So certainly when the authorities give up, the families still need answers. And so what I'm, I started to see is this new trend of Facebook missing hiker groups. And there's a lot that goes on in those groups. So as part of my research for the book, I joined these groups and I actually started to work with amateur sleuths who were connected through missing hiker Facebook groups. And you mentioned as well that there are a, a number of ways, uh, things that could happen to people, some sinister, some uh, because you're on this very rugged remote trail. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the Pacific Crest Trail and, and the fact that it's it's not just a trail where you're out walking along, you've got cell service and you've got services and facilities. It's pretty remote and, and pretty, pretty um, rugged, isn't it? Yes. Uh, the North American wilderness is still vast and treacherous. The Pacific Crest Trail runs over 2,650 2, miles from the Mexico border to the Canadian border. And there are a lot of cell service dead zones. Um, you know, as you mentioned, Cheryl Strayed, after the book and the movie came out, the number of people wanting to through hike the Pacific Crest Trail quadrupled. And their expectations are a little different. They started to see the trail less of, as a test of their physical fitness and more as a cure of some spiritual longing. And this changes attitudes of some of the hikers. But the reality is it's a treacherous trail. 16 through hikers have died while hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. And you touch on this in the book that there, there's a particular part of the trail where it's not marked all that well. And it's a part where if you take a wrong turn, you, you could go over a cliff, you could certainly get into trouble. Is that something that factors in or has factored in for you as far as looking at these three cases? Um, I, I guess maybe not given that you know where these, these men disappeared, but, but is it something where not only in that spot, it, it could be something as... Uh, the, the case of all three, they could have wandered off the trail and and come to a, a, a very sad end that way. Yes, that's absolutely one of the theories that we have searched under. The Pacific Crest Trail, they don't have these white blazes, you know, every 100 yards like the Appalachian Trail does. It was designed to be a more wilderness route. And there's one area in particular in the San Jacinto Mountains in Southern California, not too far from L.A., that the signing is horrendous and there are actual cases of other hikers getting lost and even dying after getting lost in that area. So that seems to be a pattern there where a through hiker could wander off the trail and unfortunately come to their demise far away from where people are normally hiking and that's why it's hard to find them.
Are there were there signs in these three cases? Was there any evidence or was anything found? Backpack bags, anything that that showed that yes, they that they were here. Yes, lots of uh, clues were found, but some of what how to interpret those clues is left to our interpretation. I don't want to spoil too much, sure. but I do find a clue a clue in one of the cases. Uh, that the authorities missed. And that clue brings up a lot of questions of what might that hiker, what he might have done and where he might be. Uh, is that challenging for you or is that frustrating for you as well? Again, I, I mentioned off the top that you were a law enforcement ranger with the National Park Service for 12 years. Uh, you received awards for your criminal investigations. So when you're looking into this now in, in the role that you're playing now and you see law enforcement missing major clues, how do you respond to that? I, I'm sympathetic because I know in the heat of a search, you're dealing with a lot of uh, you got media coming at you, you got family, one answers, and you're, you're wrangling dogs and aircraft and searchers and trying to keep them safe. But it is frustrating when the authorities don't respond to a new clue or a new lead. And then even you get real exciting when a new clue comes in your lap, but then it's frustrating when you follow the lead to the dead end and it still doesn't give you any answers. So, and that is that we, a lot of clues are found uh, during the five years I was embedded with this group of people trying to find the Pacific Crest Trail missing. And during that five years, what kind of a response did you get from the family members? Were they receptive and, and happy that somebody with your experience was actually taking the time and doing that deep dive and trying to find those answers? Uh, yes, I think the family uh, supportive of uh, Sally Fowler is the stepmother of Chris Fowler who went missing in Washington, and uh, she's a major character in the book, and we became very close during the years that I was researching and telling her story. I tell her story, and she did her own investigation to try to find her son. And again, don't want to give away the ending. Are there others? I know you focus on these three cases and the potential link between them. Are there other open cases and missing missing persons from this trail that at this point we, we, we don't know or that are still being investigated? Uh, not on the Pacific Coast Trail. There are only three missing through hikers, and I call them the PCT missing. However, in my book, I do go into other cases, and some of those are resolved by these amateur searchers. And so that is actually encouraging that these some new techniques involving drones are being used, and some of these cold cases are being solved by mm. that method. And, uh, Andrea, I'm curious as well, what is it that draws you? Is it your background and, and your work and your career? What is it that draws you? I mean, when you go into it, you talk about 60 hours of recorded interviews, uh, the, the handwritten notes, the, uh, the depth to which you, you investigate this. That's a lot of time. What draws you to keep doing that? Well, you know, an unsolved case is a loose end that begs us to snip it. And so I don't like having an unresolved case and I like to see cases close. I also have a lot of compassion for the families of the missing. This is a horrible situation for them to be in, not only emotionally, but financially because they can't, you know, deal with the person's estate because they're not legally dead by the state when they're missing. So uh, a lot of my drive is to help these families.
And uh, I could talk to you for hours about this, but one other question you mentioned as well after Cheryl Strayed's book came out, the quadrupling of the number of people on the trail. Uh, is your, your hope as well that people will read this and people will know uh, this is this is a, an intermediate trail. This is a challenging trail and you need to be prepared and you need to think of all these things and the dangers before heading out. Yes, I want people to through hike the trail. I want them to have fun, but I suggest they go at it with an expedition mindset uh, that this is a potentially treacherous journey that they're embarking on. And so prepare accordingly. Uh, Andrea Lankford, thank you so much. Uh, Again, I'm looking so much so forward to, to finishing the book, but thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Yeah, thank you, too. You have a good day. Some exciting news. The National Ballet of Ukraine is going to be touring Canada. These are dates that are happening in 2024. The National Ballet of Ukraine comprised of 150 dancers, and it is considered one of the world's top-ranked ballet companies. Joining me to talk a little bit more about this and what this tour is going to look like is Ludmila Movlenko, who is the head of personnel and foreign affairs with the National Ballet of Ukraine. Thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this today. Hello, nice to hear you and thank you, thank you for invitation. Well, this I know there will be so many people wanting to come out to see the shows and see the performances. How did it all come about getting this tour underway or getting this tour planned and happening in early 2024? Uh, well, uh, after the war began uh, the, on February 24, our theatre uh, didn't work for several months, but since the end of uh, May 2022, we renovated our work. And from this uh, date, we are working without uh, um, stop, without long vacations, and we perform opera, belly performances for our audience and have a lot of tours all over the world. And after our Orlando concert, charity concert in USA in uh, August 2022, uh, the idea of continuation of such charity programs was born thanks to our friends and partners and organizers of this concert in Orlando. And they decided to organize such Northern America tour. And we are going to start from Canada on January 24 till 11th of February 24. And then in uh, April, May, we hope to have also tour in USA. Hmm. Uh, so a very, very busy schedule. And uh, I understand yeah. though, as well, you mentioned the, the war that started that is continuing in Ukraine. Uh, and the, the number of productions, depending on the circumstances of what's happening with the war, how, how has that impacted the, the company and, and what you've been able to do? Uh, yes, we are performing now not uh, every day as before the war, when we have only one day off on Monday. Now we perform three times per week on Friday, Saturday and Sunday. But we perform the full productions, uh, opera uh, performances, ballet performances, symphony concerts, hall concerts. We work as uh, the big... Uh, Opera and theatre, uh, theater and uh, we are theatre number one in our country. So we continue our work 
as usual. It must be extremely difficult, though, to, to say the least, in that you must have members of the ballet and, and people that you work with that have been personally impacted and have suffered loss because of this war. Yes, of course, it's a difficult job now, but uh, it's uh, we consider this as our uh, contribution to the uh, future victory of uh, our people. We consider that we must continue our work. We must bring, as usual, our art, our talents, our belly and opera performances to our audience, and not only to our audience, but we performing we touring all over the world. Only during last season, we were in Japan, in France, in Germany, in uh, Georgia, in Poland. And it is our mission. We consider that it is our mission to and our contribution to our victory. Do you find that people are are more open to or, or, or want to come out, I suppose, and, and see the performances to support uh, the National Ballet to make sure that dancers as well as, as Ukraine knows that they are still getting the support of Canadians? Yes, of course. Uh, the audience uh, in all cities where we uh, were on tour during this uh, period of the last season are very attentive to us, and we hope that Canadian, great Canadian audience also will be uh, open for us because our hearts are open for uh, Canadian uh, spectators. And uh, we hope that uh, our performances will be interesting for you and especially for Ukrainian community which are so huge here in Canadian and we are welcome all who is now in uh, uh, who is here me now uh, will be glad to welcome you on our performances. Uh, has the performance or have the performances changed uh, with this tour or, or have you had to change kind of uh, the, the length of the performances or, or what the dancers are doing? Uh, for this performance, for this tour, we prepare the special concert program in two acts. But in uh, Kiev, we perform as usual uh, full productions, full length productions of opera or belly titles from our repertoire. Uh, and during this Canadian tour, uh, we'll perform uh, very interesting, we consider it, we hope it will be very interesting concert program, which consists of uh, several pieces of classic choreography, so modern, and of course our famous Gopak, our folk uh, dance, which is like a symbol, one of the symbols of Ukraine, and the Ukrainian uh, piece of Ukrainian very known classical belly, the forest uh, song based on uh, Lesio Krinka poetry. Uh, the program will be uh, very, very interesting and uh, we, we are supposed to bring a lot of uh, our best solists on this tour. Well, I know, uh, like you said, uh, that, that it is so important uh, that this continues and the performances happen and uh, so many people uh, want to show their support and come out mm-hmm. and see these performances. Uh, so I thank you so much for uh, Ludmila for joining us and for talking more about this today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.
Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.